This is a Full Circle podcast, connecting ideas with the power to act. This podcast is brought to you from our archives at Full Circle Brussels. We're a unique community of thinkers and doers discussing ideas that matter. Today, I'm introducing Oliver Berkman. Oliver Berkman is a journalist running a popular weekly column in The Guardian. He's a winner of the Foreign Press Association's Young Journalist of the Year Award and has been shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. He's the author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, which explores the upsides of negativity, uncertainty, failure and imperfection. Sit back and enjoy the talk. Thank you very much for, uh, for well, thank you for inviting me to this and thanks for coming along to, to listen um, and talk and object and disagree, hopefully. Um, so when I began, this book is about the limitations of the culture of positive thinking and about, about what we might do more profitably instead. When I began researching it, I went to a huge motivational seminar in Texas, which is like 13,000 people in a, in a basketball stadium in, in San Antonio. Uh, it was called Get Motivated, with an exclamation mark in the name. And uh, one of the speakers, well, actually, the keynote speaker was President George W. Bush, uh, who was um, explaining how being an optimist had uh, contributed to the success of his presidency. But one of the speakers that I want to talk about tonight was a guy called Robert Schuller, who um, was a, a veteran self-help author, and, and in his other job, the, uh, the pastor of the largest church in America constructed entirely out of glass. And, um, and he told us, basically, that if we wanted to succeed... This is one of those events where, you know, you have to jump up from your seat many times a, uh, during the day to show how motivated you are, which is obviously a really bad scene for a British person because you don't want to <laughs> do anything of the sort. So I did a lot of kind of really weak, um, pathetic jumpings out of my chair. Robert Schuller told us that if we wanted to succeed in whatever we did, all we needed to do was to uh, eliminate the word impossible from our vocabularies. He meant it literally, but he also meant, of course, you know, if you just refuse to countenance the possibility that, that, that failure can happen in whatever you're doing, whatever project you're launching, whatever business you're running, whatever, whatever you're working on, then that's the way to make sure that, that failure uh, won't happen. Just eliminate the word impossible from your vocabulary. And I was, um, I was back home a few months later reading the news on my computer in Brooklyn when I saw that the largest church in America constructed entirely out of glass had uh, filed for bankruptcy. <laughs> and a few months after that, Get Motivated Seminars uh, went bankrupt uh, as well. So um, evidently bankrupt, I told them, thought to myself, was a word that they had forgotten to uh, eliminate <laughs> from their vocabularies. I'm not, uh, I hope I'm not mocking people for going bankrupt. Um, I'm a newspaper journalist, so you have to not, uh, not mock people for uh, bankruptcy. But, but but I, I, the conclusion that I draw provisionally from that is that there's something wrong, right, with these very uh, positive um, and upbeat and optimistic approaches to achieving uh, success if the people who promote them can't, can't make a success of their own uh, businesses promoting them. I, I guess that most people in this room don't need telling that that kind of very cliched uh, jump up out of your chair in a basketball stadium kind of um, positivity is, uh, is, is, a, is a, of limited use. But what I want to try to suggest in, in the rest of my time is that there's something embodied there that's a sort of very acute version of something that, that actually we do, most of us, most of the time, 
uh, fall for when it comes to how we think about happiness, how we think about um, worldly success, and how we think about living, living meaningful lives. Um, to change the tone totally abruptly, it's something that isn't remotely uh, amusing at all, um, I, I, I think the best way into this is to talk about a story that I tell in my book, actually, about what happened um, on Mount Everest in 1996. If you've read um, Into Thin Air, John Krakauer's excellent book about that, you, you'll know that this was a, a really serious mountaineering disaster when I think eight climbers died in one 24-hour period and 15 uh, over, the, over the course of that climbing season, which was an astonishing death toll given that, obviously, by 1996, for many, many years, that Everest had been a known quantity. You can, if you've got the time and the money, you can pay people to train you and take you to the, take you to the top uh, now. What's especially interesting, I think, about this, about this um, uh, awful series of events in 1996 is that no one's ever fully been able to explain why uh, they, they happened. There was no exceptionally extreme weather. There were no um, sort of particularly devastating uh, equipment failures or anything like this. Uh, John Krakow has some really interesting uh, thoughts about the personalities of the different team leaders and how that might have contributed, but it still seems sort of underdetermined as, um, uh, as an event. What happened, basically, if you don't know, is that there was a sort of a traffic jam a couple of hundred feet uh, short of the summit. And all these teams of, of climbers became uh, sort of bottlenecked and, 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 and slowed down. And usually there's a protocol when you're climbing a big mountain like that, that if you don't reach a certain point by a certain time in the day, you have to turn around, because otherwise you're going to be uh, coming back too late at night and, and uh, exposing yourself to danger. But all these very professional, mostly, and otherwise led by professional um, climbers, uh, got into this bottleneck and just carried on pushing through and pushing through so that many of them reached the summit uh, hours and hours after their official turnaround time that they were supposed to have um, called the thing off. Nobody really knows exactly why. And that, so they came down again you know, uh, in the darkness and the worst of the weather, and that's when they, they came to grief. But it turns out there was somebody else in the area while this was happening, uh, in the foothills of the Himalayas, someone who I would not have thought when I first heard about him would have anything remotely useful to say uh, about the causes of a mountaineering disaster because he was a, a burned-out stockbroker called uh, Christopher Kays. And he was just there on a hiking holiday. You know, um, he, he, he was burned out. He wanted to recharge his batteries. He went on a hiking holiday in the foothills of the Himalayas. But it sort of ended up changing the course of his career because he was there while this thing was happening and, and uh, he saw some of the um, rescue teams and coming back down off the, off the mountain. And it sort of uh, haunted him. He told me it haunt, began to haunt him like it had happened to a member of his own family. And he sort of ended up dedicating several years of his uh, professional life to, to, to thinking about and, and studying that what could have been the, 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 the causes of this uh, disaster. And I think the reason it haunted him was because it echoed something that he had seen happen over and over again in the corporate world that he'd got so sick of and, and, and left. And that, that, that thing that he'd seen happen would be that uh, you know, some corporate leader, some big CEO, would announce a very ambitious uh, new goal for their organization. 
probably announce it publicly, try to get everybody in the organization really motivated to, uh, uh, to, to support it, get everyone very, very excited about it. And then as they started uh, implementing it, evidence would start to creep in that it, that it maybe was an unwise goal, that, that it was having unintended effects that they hadn't realized, that it could even threaten the survival of the, of the company. And that would make everyone feel very nervous and worried and uncertain because there seemed to be something jeopardizing uh, everything that they were doing. Uh, but this is where it gets uh, really interesting, I think, because in response to those feelings of uncertainty and, and anxiety, and so, so unwilling are we to feel those feelings, that, that the people involved would commit even more strongly to the goal as a result, to try to make those feelings go away to convince themselves that in a sort of feedback loop, you know, that they must be doing the right thing because they feel so, so confident about it. Um, Chris Case is now an expert in organizational behavior at a university in, the, in, in America. And I think he probably does understand that it's quite annoying when he tells mountaineers that, you know, he's got a lesson from the world of business that can help to understand, uh, understand um, what, what, when things go tragically wrong on um, climbing expeditions. But it turns out there is actually quite a good amount of psychological evidence to suggest that, that this pattern occurs among climbers as well. There's a very um, interesting study from 1963 in which some uh, psychologists based in California actually showing quite a lot of commitment for academic experimental psychologists followed a team of uh, American climbers who were making a, an attempt at the summit of Everest. As far, they got as far as base camp, the psychologists, and then they waited while the professionals went further. They had them keep very, very detailed journals, diaries about their, about their thinking and about their, um, their plans over the, over the weeks leading up to the, to, to, to the final assault on the summit. Some of these climbers wanted to try a very um, difficult route that had never been successfully attempted before. And when you analyze the diaries that they kept, you see exactly this same pattern, right? So that... Um, they would make a plan, there would be evidence would come in that suggested it was a bad plan, the weather patterns, the, the, whether their equipment was up to the, to the job. They would record, because they'd been asked to do this, uh, they would record feeling very worried and lacking confidence about the, the, the thing that they were planning to do. And as a result, you'd see the whole team gradually commit even more strongly to, um, uh, to, to going ahead with this plan Case argues that what had happened is these goals had become part of their identities, right? So it was no longer some external thing that they'd like to do if they could, but they could easily let go of. It had become part of who they were, and it was just not acceptable to them to, to, to have this level of uncertainty or potential failure be a part of their identity. And so it was important to commit even, even harder. And there was actually an, an American uh, mountaineer who was in 96 watching this bottleneck happened from lower down the mountain uh, and trying to figure out what on earth was going on. And he talks, he's called Ed, Ed the Viestas, and he talks about the attraction that people feel to the summit as a, lit almost literally, not literally, a form of magnetism. He says um, people stop thinking rationally once that goal uh, has achieved a big enough status in their minds. And uh, they go on and on and go forward. He says, quote, on a good day, you'll get away with it. And on a bad day, you'll die. So in 1963, those climbers did get away with it, and it's actually not ever going to be possible to say conclusively whether this same uh, explanation accounts for what happened in, in 96. 
but I think it's a really vivid illustration of, of, a, of a pattern that uh, I think occurs in all sorts of domains, usually with less you know, fatal consequences, of course, which is that in our efforts to become happy or successful, whatever your definitions are of, of happiness or success, we're so um, unwilling to feel uncertainty and negativity on the route to those goals that we end up taking actions that bring about the absolute opposite of anything we, we, we could have wanted. Th you know, the very, the very things we were, we were trying uh, really hard to avoid. So in the book, after um, being rude about motivational seminars, I tried to spend the rest of it being a bit more constructive and visiting various stopping points on what I came to think of as the negative path to happiness. So exploring people and uh, organizations and places where this alternative approach, this idea of being a much friendlier towards uh, uncertainty, insecurity, fear, pessimism, sadness, uh, people who exemplified that and f try and find out what their secret was and to try to experiment with it myself. Um, I'll talk about that in a minute. I think it's worth just one more time underlining how much research there is now beginning to suggest that those cliches of positive thinking are really unhelpful. Um, there's, a, there's a great study that was done a few years ago into um, affirmations. You know those things you're supposed to say to yourself in the mirror each morning, like, I'm a winner, and if you say it enough times, it's going to become true. Um, so it turns out that... Uh, that um, for people who already have low self-esteem, in other words, people who would be especially in the market for uh, adopting these kind of affirmations, if you repeat to yourself the phrase, uh, I am a lovable person, that they actually used this in the, um, in the um, experiment, uh, they end up feeling worse because it triggers, um, it prompts the mind to come up with counter-arguments about like, why you're not a lovable person. <laughs> uh, because the human mind is not a simple machine where you can just decide what you're going to put into it and what it's going to feel and what it's going to think about. Another example of uh, research putting paid to some of these uh, cliches is that um, contrary to my least favorite self-help book, The Secret, which um, advises visualizing very strongly, thinking about and picturing uh, uh, where you want to get to, what you want to have in your life. Um, Actually, in some cases, it turns out visualizing your goals can make you less motivated to achieve them. There was a lovely experiment run at uh, New York University where some of the, where the participants were rendered um, slightly dehydrated. And uh, then some of them were asked to picture drinking a refreshing icy glass of water. And their energy levels were, were monitored throughout this using um, blood pressure as a proxy for that. And, um, so the people who ended up, who visualized um, drinking the refreshing glass of water experienced a reduction in their, in their energy levels, which um, the experimenters argue quite convincingly means they would be less motivated to try and sleek their thirst um, in, in, in reality, because on some level they'd already convinced themselves, you know, that their goal had been achieved on a, uh, in that imaginary uh, realm. Self-help authors are always saying things like, your mind can't tell the difference between whether you imagine something or whether, you, whether it's real life and therefore you can visualize your way to success. But if that were true, and it seems that it is a little bit true in some ways, it would just cause your mind to give up um, on the basis that you'd already uh, achieved the thing in real life that you were, that you were shooting for. 
sometimes when I bring up this kind of anti-goal stuff about maybe you shouldn't focus so relentlessly on the end point, um, someone usually mentions this thing called the Yale Study of Goals. Because if you've ever read any kind of self-help book or business book about goal setting, they always mention this thing. It took place apparently in 1953 when researchers um, asked the graduating class of Yale University how many of them had specific written down goals for the rest of their lives and only 3% of them said, said they did. And then 20 years later, uh, the story goes, these researchers caught up with the same students and found that the 3% who had these very specific written down goals had amassed more financial wealth than um, the other 97% combined. Which is a great, great lesson in why you should set goals and be relentless about you know, focusing and keeping focused on your target. Except that it turns out it, it's completely made up, that this study never happened. Um, <laughs> several people, including me, have had sort of Yale University archivists on the case, combing through to try to find it, looking at other universities that it's sometimes been attributed to in case it happened there. There's basically no evidence that it ever happened. A few years ago, a journalist for a magazine called Fast Company um, uh, contacted one of the big-time self-help gurus who, who uses this in his, in his presentations. And he said, oh, I think I got it from, I don't know who it was, Tony Robbins or whatever. And so he named another self-help guru. And the guy went to him, and he referred him on to another one. And eventually, it's a perfect circle. Like, it joined up at the end, because nobody knows where it came from. It's just sort of out there in the ether. This, this classic finding about, um, uh, about goal setting turns out to be just made up. But like I say, I think a lot of this is a bit of an easy target. I want to try to... Um, to say a little bit about why I think this is a kind of mindset that maybe we do all share a little bit, even if you'd never be seen dead at a, at a, at a motivational seminar in Texas. So I'll just sketch very quickly a few of the stopping points that I, that I made on this journey that I came to think of as the, as the negative path to happiness. Um, so, for example, I, I discovered that there's this whole underground community, basically, of people describing themselves um, as, as Stoics, uh, not Stoic in the sort of modern-day British sense of uh, refusing to acknowledge your, your feelings. But, but in, the, uh, in the sense of the Stoics of ancient Greece and Rome, who had a very accommodating approach towards negative emotions. One of, one of their, it's a huge philosophy, I won't begin to attempt to, to sketch it all out here, but one of the techniques that I really liked from that tradition is called the premeditation of evils or you could think of it as negative visualization. This is the idea that instead of focusing on the best case scenario, uh, uh, convincing yourself that whatever you're engaged upon is gonna, is gonna work out, you, you spend proper time and effort really thinking about the worst case scenario and trying to imagine how badly um, things could go. Uh, here's the argument. We, it's very instinctive when you're worried about something or when your child is worried about something or people in your organization are worried about something. It's very instinctive to want to reassure, right? To sort of uh, convey the message that everything's going to be okay. But what the Stoics note and psychologists in their tradition since have pointed out is that when you, um, the more you insist that everything's going to work out, the more you sort of um, inadvertently reinforce the idea that uh, it will be absolutely catastrophic if they didn't work out. And it's a very sort of fragile psychology where you've got to constantly replenish your conviction that everything is going to go fine 
because you're building up this, um, this, this notion that things are, would just be devastatingly destructive and, and catastrophic if, if, if they didn't uh, go fine. Whereas a Stoic say, you know, deliberately do the opposite. Think your way through actually exactly how bad things could go. Usually you'll find that even if the answer is pretty bad, it was a lot less bad than you'd been assuming. Uh, Albert Ellis, a um, uh, 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 great and hilarious, sweary psychologist who um, was heavily influenced by the Stoics, used to say that the worst thing about any future event is usually your exaggerated belief in its horror. <laughs> and so, you know, if you practice the premeditation of evils, you, you give the future some sort of finite edges. You begin to see, well, okay, this is how bad it could be, but that couldn't happen in this, in this circumstance. Your infinite worry becomes sort of finite. Also, the Stoics point out, this is a really good way of appreciating the things you do have now. We, you know, you can't open a magazine at the moment without hearing about the importance of uh, gratitude. But if you're a bit pessimistic and downbeat, like I am, it's, um, it's difficult to just sort of decide to feel grateful about things. The Stoics point out that one way of doing that is to vividly picture losing the people, relationships, possessions, opportunities that you have now then you'll come to see uh, how much you value them in the moment. Um, Seneca, Seneca the Stoic, says that you should look at your closest relationships, quote, not as one of those things that cannot be taken away, but as though it were a jar or a crystal goblet. In other words, fragile and something that you need to cherish. You could even take this to the next level and deliberately bring on the worst case scenario that you're so worried about. Albert Ellis used to uh, instruct people that if you were scared of um, embarrassing yourself in public, then you should deliberately decide to embarrass yourself in public so that you could measure the distinction, the difference between your fears and the reality. He, did this, he had this exercise, which I did, which was originally designed for use on the New York subway, but I did it on the London Underground, where you, um, it's very simple, you just ride in the train carriage, and uh, before each station that you come to, you just speak out loud the name of the station so that everybody <laughs> in the train can, can hear you. Okay, when I came across that, I was utterly terrified by that. And when I talked about it, I get some responses like that because people are <laughs> terrified about thinking about it. And yet it's kind of weird that it's so terrifying if you think it through because you're not planning to pick a fight with anybody or verbally abuse anybody, um, you could argue it's helpful. I mean, you know, you're, you're telling them the name of the next, um, <laughs> the next station. It really isn't something that ought to be associated with emotions that are a bit like hearing that, that there's going to be a, a nuclear bombardment of your city. And yet, that's a little bit the feelings that it, that it evokes. So anyway, I did this on the central line. Um, and it was pretty excruciating <laughs> at first. Uh, but you very swiftly realize, you know, no one's going to beat you up. No one's, you're not going to get arrested. What happens is a couple of people look up from their newspapers like you're crazy, and then they go back to their newspapers, um, thereby reaffirming one of the central truths of, of social psychology, which is that you don't need to worry too much about what people think about you because they're completely wrapped up in their own dramas the whole time. 
They're really not that interested, uh, uh, even if you're speaking oddly on, on the subway. And the result is that by bringing your fear of embarrassment into direct uh, collision with the reality of it, it has this extraordinary effect of cutting those fears down to size and, and rendering them, as uh, modern-day Stoics would say anyway, rational and, and proportionate to the, uh, to the situation. And the anxiety disperses and you feel kind of great. Uh, it's, um, you know, if, uh, eventually you feel better, more exhilarated than when you, than when you began. So that's Stoicism. Oh, uh, obviously, anyone who's familiar at all with, with, with Buddhism and Buddhist practices will, will see immediately that there's a strong affinity here with some of these ideas and, um, and Buddhism, especially uh, meditation. So while I was researching this book, I went on a week-long uh, retreat at a place called the Insight Meditation Society in, uh, in Massachusetts. It's the kind of thing where you know, you, you're woken by a bell at 5.30 every morning and then you spend about nine hours of the day um, either in sitting meditation or walking meditation with a few breaks, but the whole thing's conducted in, in silence. Um, and at first it's like a total nightmare because you realize, as anyone here who's been on one of these things will, will know, that you know, once you get really quiet in your surroundings, once you really begin to focus on getting things really, really silent inside your mind, uh, you realize that it's just a crazy um, cacophony in there the whole time. For the first two days of this retreat, I had, um, the, I had that uh, song, A Barbie Girl by Aqua, <laughs> going round and round in my head. Um, I never owned it. I didn't like it at the time. I don't know where it came from, but it just wouldn't leave for, um, for a couple of days. And it gets pretty sort of um, agonizing, this, this process of trying to quiet the mind, until you realize, as I think I did um, uh, two or three days in, that it's not really about trying to quiet the mind, that actually trying to bring about calm inside your mind is a, another kind of positive thinking, a sort of Buddhist-inflected variety of, of positive thinking. And that really it's about what, what Buddhists call non-attachment, you know, cultivating this idea that this starts towards mental contents, thoughts and emotions, such that you can uh, watch them non-judgmentally, let the bad ones come as well as the good ones, not try to cling on to the good ones, not try to get rid of the bad ones, confident in the knowledge that eventually, and usually rather swiftly, They'll, they'll pass away. The metaphor that all the modern Buddhist teachers use is, is of the weather, right? I mean, it's that your mind is the sky and these, weather, and these um, emotions are weather patterns. Uh, you don't get angry at the rain for raining, or you shouldn't do. Uh, and you know that it's going to, uh, you know that it's going to stop eventually. There's an American, there was an American Buddhist teacher, she died, called Charlotte Beck, who um, put it beautifully, I think, when she said that the point of meditation isn't to change the contents of the mind, but to become, but for the mind to become a bigger container. So um, that's Buddhism. There's a whole lot of other places that I go and things that I explore, but I think one other that's just worth mentioning, um, talking tonight, is um, is this largely forgotten these days tradition of, of memento mori, the idea of bringing a focus on death and mortality back into everyday uh, life, building sort of constant reminders of this, even when 
you don't, you're not forcibly reminded of it by, by, by it happening to, to someone close to you. So death, I think, is obviously the ultimate example of a thing we try not to focus on and, and pretend um, is, is, is not going to happen. Only then to find ourselves much more, I think, shocked and traumatised by it when, it, when, it, when uh, we encounter it. As you may know, the, the psychologist Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death, in which he argued that basically trying not to think about mortality and trying to convince ourselves that we're immortal uh, is the cause of almost everything interesting that humans do. Bad things like, like, um, like war, fighting wars, but also good things like, like making great art. That He said they were all um, what he called immortality projects uh, designed to subliminally convince ourselves that we have a greater... Um, persistence in time than, than we really do. So, for example, I, I went to uh, Mexico, spent some time there during the, the Day of the Dead celebrations, which are, I read about, but are really extraordinary to actually be there, especially when you've spent a few years witnessing uh, American Halloween, which is basically a celebration of uh, chocolate and, and um, high fructose corn syrup. Because the Day of the Dead in many parts of Mexico, especially in the more rural areas, really is a celebration of people who have died and almost of the fact of death itself. You know, in some workplaces, uh, people, there people write poems speculating about how their colleagues are going to die. That's a, that's a sort of dark tradition in some, in some, in some places. I spent one night in a, in a rural uh, cemetery where, where families sort of conduct all-night vigils at the gravesides of, of relatives, uh, of deceased relatives. And it's not that they're making light of it and partying, but it's also not that they are uh, weeping and mourning. It's a very sort of easy, conversational, hanging out. It's sort, of, it's, sort of, it's, it's sort of life and death both present at once in a very relaxed way, drinking tequila, there's music going on. But it's, um, it was a sort of um, extraordinary thing to be able to to witness and only just to begin to get a little bit of a taste of. I mean, it's the, it's it's a it's a hard mental mindset to adopt if you don't uh, if you're not raised in it. I think this used to be a lot more common. You know, the obviously famous old traditions in art of including um, the skull of the patron of the painting somewhere in the in the in the in the still life to to, to remind um, to remind him that you know he's going to die as well. There's a really interesting study, actually, about the, the benefits of reminding people of mortality. There are some contexts in which it has very bad effects. If you sort of shock people into a reminder of mortality, it's been shown they become much more uh, authoritarian in their political opinions. Uh, they become much more hostile towards um, uh, people who are not like them, etc., etc. But there is one very good study that suggests some of the potential here. There was a... Um, this was set up so that... Um, it, it was a place in a city where some people were taking a shortcut through a cemetery and other people were going uh, on, a, on, a, on a different route that didn't take them through the cemetery. Um, and in both cases, it was set up so that they would hear somebody on a mobile phone talking about the importance of helping people. It was just a snippet of a conversation that they accidentally uh, overheard. And then um, in each case one of the researchers would, would um, make a big show of like dropping her notes on the, on, the, on the ground, the clipboard and the papers and everything. And people walking through the cemetery with a subliminal reminder of death were 40% more likely to um, stop and, and help. 
this sort of connects to a, a growing body of research to suggest that if you remind people of their mortality in the right way, uh, it really triggers compassionate responses and it reminds people of the things that, that we all share in common, of which that is the most basic and, and universal and, and fundamental. So in all these different ways, I, I, I'm looking at this idea of a turning towards things that we sort of run away from and a suggestion that if we can let ourselves feel them, not always demanding closure and, and, uh, and, and, um, uh, and a sort of absence of, of, of negative emotions, that there's actually a lot of opportunity for far more meaningful uh, lives and more effective uh, uh, you know, work and, 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 and everything else. I think it's really important, though, to emphasise that this isn't some kind of wishy-washy spiritual thing that doesn't have much uh, relationship to, to real life, because I think that's sometimes the place that you can go uh, following this argument. It's actually a really intensely practical uh, way to live, I think. There have been some fascinating studies of uh, entrepreneurs by a woman called Saras Sarasvati in the US. And she's conducted these very long interviews uh, over many hours with, um, with all sorts of successful business people. And she finds that they do all these things naturally, right? So they, the, the ones who, who really have a lot of success, they, they, um, they use the premeditation of evils. They don't say, I'm convinced this is going to work out. They, they figure out how bad things could go. And then if it, the answer is not too bad, they move forward. She calls this the principle of affordable loss. When you're planning some big choice, life choice, or new direction uh, for an organization, or whatever it might be, don't ask, is it going to work out? Ask, could I tolerate the loss if it didn't work out? If the answer is yes, then go forward. And that's how you will take interesting risks instead of uh, destructive, destructive ones. Uh, they don't come up with really detailed business plans and then stubbornly force them through into reality. I think that's the cliche we sometimes have of, you know, the Steve Jobs character who, who has this vision of what must be and then brooks no uh, opposition in bringing it into reality. None of the people in these studies did that. What they did was, you know, they, they, they laughed at the idea of detailed business plans. They thought, if I had, you know, when I get an idea, the first thing I try and do is make a few sales because then you get instant feedback about what's right and what's wrong. You know what, you, you, you understand which bad parts of your idea matter, so you can correct them, and you understand which bad parts of your idea don't matter because nobody minds about them, and then you get to move up forwards without having a very clear idea of where you're going by cultivating an attitude that, that, that solicits feedback through interaction rather than waiting till you have some perfect uh, business plan to reveal to the world. It's totally the same with, with writing a book as well. I, I, I talk about this in the book, but actually just as a mechanism for getting the book written, uh, the realisation that, that, um, that you don't have to feel like doing something in, in order to do it was, was really powerful for me. That this kind of motivational culture that we're, that I think a lot of us anyway, I don't really know how, how prevalent it is in, uh, in, in Brussels, but it's not, I've, I'm satisfied that it isn't just America. Um, you know, we're, we're completely drenched in this idea that you, that you should, um, if you don't feel motivated enough, you should like get yourself into the right frame of mind. Or if people that um, you manage are, seem to be sort of uh, insufficiently motivated, you should get them into the right state of mind. It's a very positive thinking idea in my view, because what it does is, you know, you think it's going to help you get over the hurdle of, of resistance or procrastination. 
But actually, it adds another hurdle because to begin with, you just needed to do the thing. Now you need to make yourself feel like you want to do the thing as well. And that's actually a lot harder because actions, like in the case of writing, you know, open the laptop, open the file, um, open up the notes, start typing, those you can sort of take, whereas they're fairly straightforward. Um, deciding to feel motivated is one of those things that, that, that you just can't, you can't do. The brain, the mind rebels, you, 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 um, you feel even worse. You, you object to being dictated to, even when you're the person uh, doing the dictating. <laughs> it's terribly childish, but I think it's pretty fundamental to how, to how our minds um, operate. Um, I really like, uh, I'm finishing off, but I, I really like this um, line that I think really sums this up from a, a Japanese therapist called uh, Shoma Morita, who, uh, whose work gave rise to a, a school called Morita Therapy. I, th I kind of come to think of him as the ultimate anti-positive thinker. Um, and his life advice, this is great, he says, quote, give up on yourself. Begin taking action now while being neurotic or imperfect or a procrastinator or unhealthy or lazy or any other label by which you inaccurately describe yourself. Go ahead and be the best imperfect person you can be and get started on those things you want to accomplish before you die. End quote. <laughs> sort of brings it into focus, I think. I think it's um, certainly a much more powerful and durable and, uh, and research-backed, I would add, um, way of thinking about happiness than, say, the approach of Tony Robbins, who gets people to walk across hot coals barefoot at his um, events using only the power of mindset to, to stop them uh, burning their feet. Um, actually, it's not the power of mindset. It's the fact that coal is, really and, uh, is a poor um, convector. I may not be using the word correctly, but like, basically, if you walk really fast over hot coals in bare feet, you're going to be fine because of the nature of coal. And if you do it on certain other hot things, you wouldn't be fine at all. And in fact, last year, I think, uh, at, uh, in San Jose, he did this and had people uh, walk across hot coals and there, something went wrong in the planning or the preparation and uh, about 20 people had to be hospitalized with uh, burnt feet. So I, I, don't think, uh, I don't think that's an approach uh, that, that, <laughs> that has a lot going for it. Uh, that's all I've got to say, really. So I'll stop there and hopefully we can have a good conversation. Thank you very much for, for listening. Thanks for listening to our talk. We'll be back soon with more thought-provoking content. So if you enjoyed this talk, please consider following our podcast on Spotify and other podcast streaming services. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with our events at Full Circle Ideas on Facebook or watch our other talks and interviews on YouTube at Full Circle Brussels. Until next time.